0: Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. Right, I'm Nick. And we are joined today with um, Stefan Huddleston. He's been on our channel before, I think most recently on an episode where we went back and looked at uh, the film Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, but he's back today uh, to give us a, uh, a little bit of a window into some of his more recent research on something called propaganda. And uh, without further ado, I just actually want to have uh Stefan just jump right in and tell us what is propaganda
1: yeah, sure so uh hello, everybody I'm uh Stefan Huddleston, like Jared said uh and I'm here to talk about propaganda, and it's something that, as a historian and as a uh someone who heavily does a lot of my work with uh media and television and film and and games and all that stuff uh is a huge topic right now because. <clears throat> uh cop shows uh and and films about cops are everywhere and they've been everywhere on our television landscape and on our movie landscape for quite a while now um and so i wanted to talk about this idea of copaganda and and that requires uh um kind of covering what is copaganda uh in the beginning so Of course, propaganda is really this idea uh, that is created through television and through uh, media and film uh, that paints a particular picture of the cop, of the police, and law enforcement. It's important to understand that for the majority of Americans, and when I say this here, uh, let's be honest, white Americans, their only encounters with the police outside of maybe a a, a traffic stop or seeing them pass by on the street is on television. Um, Now, I have to preface this by saying that it's important to understand that Television and media has a lot more influence and films have a lot more influence on our lives than we realize right now, every single one of us, myself included, believes something or thinks something that is not true because of what we've seen on television. And this ranges across a wide, not just in dealing with the police, but in, in, in our everyday lives, for instance, everyone's seen um, on television, or a movie, I'm sure you've seen someone take a cigarette and flick it into a pool of gasoline and start a fire. That's impossible, okay? Not only is there a famous episode of Mythbusters that covered it, but the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms conducted 2000 tests under varying conditions and not once could they get a cigarette to ignite gasoline. It's impossible, yet right now, there are people who are sitting in prison because they either were coerced into a confession that they put a cigarette into gasoline or because they were convicted by a jury because they started a fire by flicking a cigarette into gasoline. And all of that comes from people's perceptions from television and film media. But again, test have proven impossible. You need an open flame. And it's not just that the way fire sprinklers work in buildings, the way so-called silencers work. There are many, many things, uh, the way our justice system functions, the way um, court proceedings work, people have misperceptions based on television. And this is at the root of copaganda, of people's perceptions of the way police operate in the real world and what they do. So we have studies that show that because of the way police operate in in movies that when people see police say for instance beating someone in the real world there is an increased perception that that person must have done something wrong they deserve it because in television when we see the police beating some someone we know as the viewer we have this kind of third person perspective we know that person's guilty right we know they committed this crime you know they're a child molester or they're a murderer or whatever so hey it's it's okay. The police are just bending the rules to get the bad guy and and and, and if they're beating a bad guy, what do we care, right? Um, so they and they,
0: so, they serve yeah, go ahead. they serve, and, and, and we use this term all the time on this channel, so many listeners will know what we're talking about. They serve as like ethically constitutive stories. This is socialization. So mm-hmm. just like we would argue that these stories of the past, like Greek mythology or Egyptian mythology, socialize people into behaviors and beliefs and actions, you know, thousands of years ago, we have those same mythological beliefs today. They're just delivered through a different vehicle rather than a bard singing them or or hieroglyphs. They come to us through mass media, television, um, predominantly in film, right? That's what we're talking about today. And Mm -hmm. these things affect the way um, we perceive law enforcement and our relationships with them in the real world. So we transfer what we're learning through the television and film to our interactions in the real world and our belief systems and the way we vote and things along those lines. That's what we're insinuating through like these perceptions of of law enforcement.
1: 100%. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. These are again. Yeah, that's perfect. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Jared. That's exactly what's going on here. Um, and so, what we have here, through what propaganda is, is what we refer to, uh, what 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 like media scholars refer to as as soft propaganda. So when you talk about propaganda, we have hard propaganda, which is what a lot of people think of when you hear the word propaganda, right? These are the World War II propaganda posters that show Japanese people as as monkeys or as lice. These are the um, anti-Jewish posters of Nazi Germany. These are uh, films like triumph of the will where you see all the rows of nazi soldiers marching and saluting and, and things like that and then we have what is known as soft propaganda right this is uh these are things that are uh more subtle right but no less impactful um they are not you know directly created to be like you know some sort of jingoistic um um influencer, right? But they are something more subtle. And this is what we're dealing with when uh, we're looking at with propaganda. These are things that are uh, very much like you said, that ethically constitutive story that are to subtly enter these ideas into people's heads about how they're supposed to act, how they're supposed to interact with the police, uh, what the police, who they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do and what services they are supposed to provide for us, for the populace, right? Um, and so it's important for us to understand where does that come from, right? Where Where is that created? So in order to understand that, we have to go all the way back um, to 1915. And in 1915, uh, there's a Supreme Court case, the Mutual Film Corporation versus the Industrial Commission of Ohio. And it's important for people to understand that this case existed because – a lot of people have this perception that the way we got here is that there was this kind of voluntary uh, creation of censorship in the middle of the 20th century, early to middle 20th century, by uh, film, film companies. And that's partially true. But this case, uh, this Mutual Film Corp case, the Supreme Court delivers a unanimous decision that in the early days, films – are not protected First Amendment speech. So films early on do not have protected First Amendment speech uh, uh, rights, right? So films are considered a business and not First Amendment speech. So what this means is, is that they are open to government censorship. So in order to prevent that, the studios, the film studios in the 1930s, end up creating... What is known as the Motion Picture Production Code, or more colloquially known as the Hayes Code, and what this is is this is a series of rules that what can be done in film, right? And 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 television eventually follows with this and comes up with their own code as well. But there's a whole laundry list of things that you can and cannot do in film. You can't show interracial relationships. You can't um, you can't have people kiss more. Uh, than three seconds, right? You can't have, um, you can't show public officials, governors, clergy, uh, police in a bad light. If you do show someone who's corrupted, right? In these areas, right? Someone who is uh, um, doing something bad, they have to pay for it. We have to show that the system works, Right. So if you do have a corrupt cop at the end of the production or whatever, they're going to go to jail. They're going to uh, they're going to die or whatever the case may be. Uh, If someone commits a crime under the motion picture production code, they have to pay for it. The police are going to catch them. They are going to pay in some way by the end of the film show, whatever. Right. And so for the bulk of the 20th century, Films and then eventually television are portraying police as servants of the community, as paragons of virtue, as people who are going to do the right things, and if there are bad ones, it's going to be fixed, right? It's going to be corrected. And this remains – and it's not until 1952. There's another case, um, Joseph Burstyn Incorporated versus Wilson, that – finally says films are protected by the first amendment um they can still however be censored for obscenity and the definition of obscenity at this time is very broad and um and then it's not until 1965 that any government sponsorship government sponsored censorship of film is completely removed and that's when we get the 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 beginnings of the rating system that we know today um in television films the the mmpa um where we have you know pg and eventually they had pg13 of course it starts out a little bit different um in the beginning you know we we have um x ratings eventually early on and that becomes nc17 and there's changes but this is where we get that and so it's important to understand that there was this code that existed that that the, the uh, motion picture companies had created out of necessity um, to prevent government censorship. And it, it was crafted in this way that gave us a very carefully constructed image of police for a
0: very long time. Um, yeah, I would have to assume that the people that dominate like the boards or the decision makers like that, that are deciding what ratings there are, what rules they have to follow, whether the first amendment protected film or not, it doesn't matter. They're dominated by a very, very narrow specific part of the population. Right. Like, yeah, we're, we're going Uh, to go with probably like white male, probably wealthy, ultra conservative cis. Yeah. All of, yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And, um, Um, predominantly um, um, very conservative Christians or Jews, right, Um, is what you have here um, on these boards. Um, In fact, for a very long time, things are driven uh, uh, censorship-wise by what is known as the Catholic League of Decency, right? Uh, For a very long time in the middle of the 20th century, this group, this citizens group, has a great deal of power. If they boycott a film, that film is done right if they say do not go see this film people aren't going to go see it and and they're done uh, that starts to fall apart a little bit in the 1950s and into the 1960s. And in 1967, which is like a landmark year for people who are film students, film scholars know that this is a landmark year. Um, we had had challenges to the motion picture prediction code before 67. But 67 is the year that we get films like In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, all of these films that do these things that had formerly been, uh um, disallowed by the motion picture production code and then the code pretty much dies um it's death and um very shortly thereafter then we start to see a raft of films that start to do things that hadn't been allowed before we start to see nudity we start to see uh extreme violence and blood we start to see um Um, characters uh, who are gay. We start to see all of these other things start to crop up in television and film early on. But also what we start to see is, and there's a couple of things happening here. We start to see um, a new type of character come out as far as police are concerned. No longer do we have these now police who are going to follow the rules who are going to be the good guys in the paragons of justice and we get a particular character that comes along that of course most people have heard of dirty harry callahan played by clint eastwood right um and this particular character it's super vital to note um that um that he comes out at a time it's 1971 and he this this film comes out at a time when we're seeing a rapid increase in the united states in violent crime um contrary to a lot of perceptions uh, of what's happening today right uh violent crime in the united states reaches its peak in the 90s overall gun violence actually sees its peak in the 70s um gun death sees its highest point in the 70s. Um, And we, per capita, are nowhere near that. Now, we've seen some spikes recently in violent crime in the United States, but we're nowhere near the per capita number of violent crime, and um, and we're getting closer, scarily. Uh, But what we see here is people are afraid, right? In the 1970s, um and, and coming out of the nineteen sixties, we've had a lot of high profile assassinations, JFK, RFK, Martin Luther, uh King, uh, Malcolm X, uh, all of these other things, right? Um, we see a lot of uh things like the Manson, Charles Manson killings and things like that, the Manson family. And there's this wide perception of people of fear of like just criminals are running rampant, right? So Dirty Harry and, and what becomes known as the Dirty Harry archetype comes into being with the police, right? And this is a police officer who is, uh, one, he's, he's a dedicated police officer, but he is hampered by bureaucracy and rules, and what you're going to see uh, come out of this character is an archetype that's going to continue on um, to this day. Uh, this archetype of the police officer who is fighting against a system that is preventing him from getting the bad guys, right? These are going to be these bureaucratic rules about like all of these silly things, right? Like having to get a warrant or having to Mirandize people. Or having to announce that he's a police officer or those sort of things. And what we're going to hear is this refrain that the criminals have more rights than the citizens, right? That the criminals are the ones who have all these rights and loopholes that are going to allow them to continue to carry their crimes, that are going to allow them to get off on technicalities. And what we need to defend us from that, the people, right? The ethically constitutive story, if you will, becomes that we need someone who can circumvent the system to save us from these criminals who are going to use the system to their benefit. And that is Dirty Harry, right? He's going to blow these guys away. They're not even going to make it to trial. He's just going to blow them away in the streets. And then
0: we can move on. Society is safe. So examples like Dirty Harry, and then obviously it, it lays a template for later examples, and I'm sure you're going to give us some here in a few minutes, but like I guess what what struck me and what you were just saying is, and, and you talked about Miranda rights and things along those lines, that this individual can literally violate like the constitutional rights of other citizens because, again, right, innocent until proven guilty, and all of the other things that we've learned, right, can literally violate those in the name. And this is where the cognitive dissonance comes in of like patriotism in this case. Yes. Right? So, yeah. So, so some of these viewers, as we talk about, right are socialized into extreme nationalism or extreme patriotism and they respect the constitution. And in a modern sense, I'll probably make fun of them and they slap it on the back of their truck or something <laughs> like that. Um, and yet they respect those that violate that. They violate that exact like documentation in those belief systems. So, so you're arguing yeah. essentially that via like, like dirty Harry and these other cops that are, that are on film, somehow are able to socialize those individuals into that cognitive dissonance, not being able to make Absolutely. the connection that they are rooting for somebody that is actively going against the other things they say they believe
2: in. Well, not only yeah, that, 100%. but the narrative becomes like that the police are hampered by right, all of these policies and they can only be effective yeah. in protecting our best interests if they are willing to circumnavigate right, this bureaucracy and these policies that are making them ineffective. Right. So essentially, the narrative becomes that the corrupt police officer is the only one that can actually function well to protect our safety. Right. Which is like ridiculous. Right. And yeah. I guess yeah, I'm blind
0: with cognitive dissonance. I actually just want to say the outright hypocrisy of these. Views yeah. Slash, yeah. Well,
1: it, and one of the reason this works so well is, again, while watching these programs, right, unlike in the real world, right, Um, when we're watching these programs, We have zero doubt who the guilty party is, right? These films and these shows, they show us these uh, murderers and rapists and everyone else. They show us them committing their brutal crime. Right. And particularly in this era, now that the code is gone, they're able to show these crimes in graphic detail. Right. And so this evokes an emotional response within the viewer of this is, a, a you know, a, a scumbag, quote unquote. Right. This is someone who has completely destroyed the social contract. And so for the police to go out and bend some rules or break some rules to get that person, We're going to let that go because we know this person did it, right? Um, And that becomes problematic because in the real world, we don't know. Now, we think we do because we have studies that show that when the police arrest someone, even though we have this overarching ideal of innocent until proven guilty, studies show that when the police name someone as a suspect or a person of interest – they get associated with guilt because the police know what they're doing. So obviously if they're looking at this person, they must have done something wrong. Right. Um, and we've seen people's lives destroyed because of this, even though they're later cleared or exonerated, or the police just wanted to ask them some questions because they happen to be in the area when the crime was committed. Right. Um, they still can be followed their lives. Richard Jewell, um, who was the security guard who found the backpack, uh, the suspicious uh, thing at the 96 Olympics, right, is, is – his life is destroyed uh, coming out of that. He's hounded for years um, thinking that he had something to do with it when he didn't, right? Um, and this happens time and time again. And that and so, disconnect yeah,
0: comes from our belief system that we're getting through this cop because like any other yes. workplace, a police station or a policing or the judicial system in general would suffer from the same type of incompetence or nepotism or corruption that you would see in any other workplace. I'm not saying it's more or less, but we're willing right. to suspend that understanding. We all go to work. We all know somebody that's really bad at their job or bad whatever, but we're willing to suspend that belief with this one workplace, right? Like, right. We're willing to forget that that happens everywhere to include within the judicial system. Yes. And and what's important to understand
1: here is that police who spend hundreds of hours in weapons training and in combat training spend far less time nationally speaking right overall they spend far less time doing things like de-escalation training Mm -hmm. they do far less time on doing things like actually understanding the laws right so you can go on youtube right now and you can find a whole group of people whether you agree with them or not known as constitutional auditors and they have hundreds of videos where they look at police incidents right and they will uh, um They will uh, grade, quote unquote, grade police officers in their interactions with the public about whether or not police officers knew the laws that they were trying to enforce upon people, right? Whether they were violating people's constitutional rights. And there's hundreds of videos where police, everyday police officers, are violating people's constitutional rights because they themselves don't know them, right? The police don't know them. We have this perception again, and this is not just with police. We do it with doctors and everything, that the people who are in these fields are experts at what they do, so we think they know everything about it, right? We think they know, even though when you look at what the contents of the laws are, say in a given state or federal law, we're talking about hundreds of volumes, hours and hours and you know of case law, right? That it, that even dedicated lawyers don't don't know right completely they have to do research hours of research and stuff like that and people expect that a cop on the street is going to know these things right but they don't even know the basic functions of just the bill of rights in many cases right when they are out there enforcing the law right you've seen videos of police officers telling people they can't film in a public area right you've seen uh 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 basic uh things of 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 police asking people for id or pulling people over uh when they have no business doing it they have no reason for doing it right um and this is true but we have this perception from movies and television that police know the laws that they are enforcing through and through right um and they know when to break them they know when to violate them um and that's okay, right? Propaganda creates this perception that that's okay because obviously the police would only, under the tenets of what we see on television or movies, they would only do that when they know that this person is guilty, right? And when they know that this means. person. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so therefore, that allows those people who would normally be, you know, defending the Constitution to basically. Kind of allow these kind of transgressions because of of we well, they're guilty, right? And so Dirty Harry kind of becomes the first in this line of uh, police officers and it carries on throughout into uh, throughout the 70s and into the 80s and on and on. So we start to get television shows like in the 1980s. we have a television show called Hunter. Uh, It stars Fred Dreyer and Stephanie Kramer. Fred Dreyer formerly played for the LA Rams. Um, And he becomes kind of, again, an archetype of this police officer, right, who is, uh, again, breaking the rules. As a matter of fact, in the first episode of the show, they get a new lieutenant, and this new lieutenant becomes another archetype of this kind of genre, the -the by-the-book lieutenant, right? Here are the rules that you guys have to follow. You have to announce yourselves as police officers when you're uh, going after somebody you have to fire a warning shot before you shoot somebody you have to do all of these things that that it's like yeah that sounds like some pretty good ideas of what police should be doing right but every cop in the room was like oh you're hampering us you're giving more rights to the criminals what are you doing you're you're preventing us from doing our jobs right and so now These things are no longer violations. They are standard procedures of the job, right? These violations become standard procedures. They become what police are supposed to be doing to protect us, to protect the citizenry, right? Um, And we start to begin the development of what will become uh, in police circles and in television police circles, um, the division of the citizenry, right? We have the wolves, the sheep, and the sheepdogs, right? We are the sheep, the criminals are the wolves, and the police are the sheepdogs, right? They are the ones who are to protect us from the wolves, from these ravening hordes, right? What becomes known as the thin blue line, right? They are the, Mm. the defense, the wall between us and the slavering hordes of the wolves that are going to eat us, right? um and in order to protect us they have to they have to have a, a, a by any means necessary policy right if we have to break some rules to protect our sheep then that's what we have to do right and this becomes this carefully constructed image of the police right um that we see time and time again and so i point people um to uh the organization Color of Change, particularly Color of Change Hollywood, um, and that is a particular organization that pushes for uh, representation and equality um, across the board, but the Hollywood branch particularly focuses on Hollywood. And they put out a report in 2020 called Normalizing Injustice. Um, this is an extensive report um, that they put out where they look at um, a range of television um police television shows so all of these major shows that are out um ncis and and the various branches of that and um law and uh, order criminal order minds and, yeah. and law and order and all of these others right and they looked at these shows and they asked some very hard questions what is the makeup of the writing staff shocker it's 80 percent white men. yeah it's the whites uh yeah um the uh they looked at uh um who's writing these shows who's starring in these shows and and what are they doing in these shows right and 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 what actions are they taking um one of the perceptions that comes out of um propaganda is the effectiveness of the police right because within an hour the police are going to identify who done it they're gonna and then they're going to catch the person who did it, right, um, within an hour or maybe depending on the format of the show, they might have it run over the force, the, the content of a, of a season, right, um, where they might have a longer format where they're tra- trailing a serial killer for an entire season. But ultimately, they're going to get the person who did it, right, um, uh, very rarely, and there are a few instances where they get the wrong person, but but when they do – The system self corrects. If they get the wrong person, either A, they discover it very quickly, or B, we're going to have a particular episode in a season where they're going to go back to a case where they got it wrong and they're going to fix it. They're going to get it right. Um, And so we are trained by these shows that the system self corrects, it's going to fix itself. If there are any discrepancies, any problems, we get the wrong person, don't worry about it. We're going to fix it, right? Um, and we are told that the police are highly effective, that they are going to get the right person, and we're going to have very solid. So this creates um, another real-world impact. What is known in um, – in, uh, um, legal circles as the CSI effect, because CSI, of course, becomes one of the very rapidly uh, uh, popular television shows um, of the last uh, few decades, right? And what the CSI effect is, and and, and people will notice this now, if you've gone any time within the last, say, probably 10 or 15 years or, or so, if you've gone and you've gotten to the stage in jury Uh, uh, jury duty where you've gone to where they're selecting a jury, one of the questions that is likely to be asked, how often or do you watch shows like Law & Order, CSI, NCIS, so on and so forth, something to that effect. They want to know how much you watch these shows because it impacts how you're going to sit on a jury. We have studies that show that people – Are asking questions. They are asking questions like, where's the DNA evidence? Because in television, there's almost always DNA evidence. In the real world, that's not always the case, right? People are asking questions based on their perceptions of the way criminal proceedings function from these television shows. And so the CSI effect has come into play, and lawyers on both sides want to know how much you watch these shows because it's going to affect how you're going to sit on that jury. Furthermore, in some States, Colorado, where I am, for instance, um, allow jurors now to ask questions in court proceedings. So as a juror in Colorado, you're able to write down a question, pass it to the judge. And if the judge deems that question appropriate, then that question will be asked just as if a lawyer were asking a witness a question. Um, and that has a huge, huge effect when people are influenced by um, these shows, right? They they are watching these and, and asking, again, for DNA evidence. They're asking for um, things that they've seen on these shows that don't necessarily translate into what's happening um, on these uh, – or in, in the actual courtroom. Um, and so, again, real-world impacts here of the presumption of a person's guilt based on uh, police interest in them, Uh, the presumption that if the police are beating someone, well, they must have deserved it, right? We hear this with George Floyd, right? Well, he was committing a crime, right? To the point that people are able to rationalize that some petty crime, even if there is one, whether there is one or not, but the perception that there was a petty crime, right, allows the police to kill someone, you to know, to even spend though,
0: all of the, again, the constitutional rights that they're supposed to be upholding yes. and supporting and not just the cops themselves, but those people that are usually, again, creating that cognitive dis- dissonance between their blind patriotism and their lack of respect for what that patriotism is supposedly means in terms of rights for all individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so Which is an embarrassing, um, I, embarrassing amount, like I said, of hypocrisy.
1: It is, it's, 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 it's disgusting. Right. Um, and so it's important and I highly recommend that people, you can go on to uh, color of change, uh, Hollywood it's Hollywood.colorofchange.org. You can just put in normalizing injustice in your Google. I highly recommend people read this report that it is a very extensive report. Um, and, and it breaks down, um, again, who the writers are, right. Only 9% of writers on crime shows are black. Right. Um, um, 11% overall are women of color across these shows, right? Um, we've, we see, uh, um, what is known, what they call, um, in this report, they call out what is known as the good guy endorser ratio. And what that is, is it's wrongful actions committed by good guys, right? Versus bad guys, um, and how often um, good, good guys commit these acts you were just talking, right? They're violating people's rights. They're violating the constitution in order to get justice, right? Um, and it's shockingly common, right, in, uh, in these shows um, that we see this happen, right? Um, it gives numbers on how often the success ratios of the police in these shows, right? Uh, how often they are successful in tracking down the right person. Uh, um, and it's in the, it's in the eighties and nineties percents uh, with criminal minds. It's a hundred percent, right? They always get the right person um, eventually, right? They're tracking down these vicious serial killers. Right. Um, and, and then how does that translate into um, they talk about, like, how does that translate into perceptions, right? They talk about in this report about how how um, people of color are portrayed, right? How often are people of color portrayed as criminals as opposed to be, being portrayed as one of the good guys, right? And how that shapes these perceptions of people of color in the real world, right? Um, we, again, have studies, um, and they link some of them in this. We have studies that show... Uh, the difference between the actual commission of crimes by people of color and the perceptions that people have of how often people of color commit crimes. Um, And there's a wide variance there, right? And a lot of that comes from, you know, again, for many, many Americans, again, white Americans, their only contact with people of color is through television, is through film, right? um and so they are drawing these conclusions based on these shows well yeah so when they they respond to these things when they're asked well how often do you know black men commit these crimes or whatever right there are these uh mistaken perceptions of how often these crimes are being committed that's <clears throat> coming from these shows, right?
0: Yeah. Coates's myth of black criminality, right? Like that research. Absolutely.
1: That, yeah. Yep. 100%. Yeah. And so what we have is a kind of a, a juxtaposition of a perception of people of color in particular, right? Of criminality. And then of how the police handle that, right? How the police are going to protect us from that criminality right how are they going to uh uh, um defend us again from the hordes Um, and all of that comes together to create this particular image um, of police to the point that now it is very easy so there's a, a show that's on now chicago pd right and the lead police officer in that show he starts off, it, it, it becomes there's a whole like Chicago line of shows similar to how all these shows have linked. So there was Chicago Med and Chicago PD and Chicago Fire. And he starts out on Chicago Fire as a literal corrupt cop, right? Um, who um, Who is uh, actually going after, uh, criminally going after one of the police people, one of the main characters in Chicago Fire, right? Um, And so then they decide, well, oh, this guy is perfect, right? We're going to make him kind of the leader, kind of the head cop on this Chicago uh, PD thing. So they kind of retcon a little bit and, oh, well, all of those criminal things that he did on Chicago Fire, he was undercover. He was on deep cover, right? Like to do all that, right? Even though he was doing these illegal things, it's okay because he was undercover. He was just playing one of the bad guys to catch more bad guys, right? Um, He was was after bigger
0: fish. So if he broke some laws, who cares, right? So this leads Um, me to a question I wanted to ask you when you were talking about the 80s. What role does the cool or sexy factor have to play? Because I saw – I've seen that evolution myself when we start talking about Miami Vice – and um, Mel yeah. Gibson in, in what is he? Lethal Weapons. Lethal um, Weapon. Yeah. Even 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 though if we're, we were talking about people of color, we could actually also pick on Will Smith and Martin Lawrence and Bad Boys. Um, yes. Like so, you see this 80s and 90s where the cop is now also cool. Like it's like yeah. cool and and they're driving fancy cars and they they don't even have to wear uniforms. They got all they have to have is like a badge hanging around their neck or whatever. Magnum yeah. he, Oh wait, never mind. I was about to say Magnum PI, but he's only a PI. He's not a cop. So he gets to drive yeah. around a Ferrari and stuff. But like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. PI, like even me as a as a younger viewer back then, I mean as like really a small tiny child, I didn't know the difference between PI and cop anyway. So that's like just more right. part of like
2: yeah. Well, I think yeah, that no, even absolutely. like links back to Dirty Harry, right? And even bo- just before him, right? Steve McQueen and Bullet, right? Ah, I mean, yes. yeah. Clint Eastwood yes. is a sex symbol, right? It's not like he's a hideous human yes. being playing this corrupt police officer, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I- I'm glad you brought both up both Bullet and uh, Miami Vice because those are both like. Uh, these key uh, 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 landmarks right in this whole evolution right and, and you're right uh, the sexy police officer right these uh, uh, bullet uh, you know known for probably you know one of the greatest car chases in cinema history right and Steve McQueen is right at the height of his popularity right he's the he's the hottest sex symbol in Hollywood at the time. Uh, Miami Vice becomes this cultural phenomena in the 80s, right um, it becomes um, this massive influencer, right You've got uh, people all of a sudden dressing like the cops on Miami Vice right It becomes um, uh, this kind of confluence of of imagery and music and everything that creates this whole new uh, kind of uh, 80s uh, cool neon factor, right? Yeah. That yeah, becomes right. a, a yeah a landmark uh image of the 80s, right? And they're in Miami. So you've got the palm trees and the beautiful the architecture and the and the beaches and the whole nine yards thrown into that, right? Um, and that really solidifies this image of like the sexy police officer, right? And 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 something to be desired and admired, right? And something that that, you know, as a little kid, you want to be, right? um, you want to be that, right? And, and it, it, it matches up very nicely with like in the um, 1970s, we got Adam 12 and Dragnet, right? And these are shows produced by Jack Webb. Um, and Jack Webb is very big about crafting these stories that give us a look into police procedures, into, first responders procedures in general, right? His production company does emergency or emergency 51, which looks at a uh, hospital and a uh, paramedic and fire procedures. He gives us dragnet, which gives us detective procedures. He gives us uh, Adam 12, which gives us the role of the street cop. And again, shows us these cops in, in, in these productions who are, going to follow the rules, right? They're not the Dirty Harrys. They are the ones who are going to follow the rules. And so we have all of these kind of coexisting, right? We have the archetype of the cop who follows the rules, who does it by the book, the by the book cop, right? We have the um, the cop who uh, is going to break the rules. And of course, Lethal Weapon then brings those two together, right? The Danny Glover by the book character, right? The old kind of the old guard. Right. And then the new young cop who is going to be the rule breaker. And we're going to put those two together. Right. And kind of create kind of one one of not the only, but one of the baselines of what becomes the buddy cop genre. Right. Um, These two police officers who couldn't be more different, who are going to go out and and using the skills of both solve uh, whatever our crime is, whatever our big mystery is, right? Um, and so we have this confluence of police types, right? To show that, hey, the police are kind of like this diverse bunch, right? They have this set of skills they're going to tap, right? And yeah, we may have these kind of of rule breakers amongst them, the Dirty Harrys uh, and the Martin Riggs from, from Lethal Weapon of the Bunch, right? But... But we have the Roger Murtaugh's, right, Danny Glover's character of the world, to kind of rein them in, right, to kind of uh, uh, kind of hold the leash, if you will, of the sheepdog, um, and kind of keep them engaged, right. And then we have our cool cubs, right, who are are essentially, you know, they are again another form of soft propaganda, who are going to tell us, and this goes all the way back to. Um, in the nineteen uh, late 60s and 70s we get the mod squad um, and the mod squad is a group of young people recruited straight out of the police academy right and we have the archetypical makeup we're gonna get one white dude, one white girl, and a black guy right yeah. and we're gonna we're gonna put them together they're young they're new they're fresh and they're going to uh, create. Uh, this new hip squad that knows what's going on in the streets. Right They They know what's going on. And that's going to translate right into the Miami vices. That's going to translate into the 21 jump streets. Right. Where we get uh, again, you know, Johnny Depp and, and, and this kind of crew of young people, people who who look young enough, even though they're police officers, they look young enough to be able to infiltrate high schools. And root out crimes in high schools, right? Um, the drug dealing and, the, and all of the salacious things we're told that are going on in the high schools of the period, right? Um, and, 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 and find those things out before they happen, right? But they're cool, right? And that cool factor then, again, translates into the young kids who are watching this and the teens who are watching this. Then empathizing with the police, right? Creating this connection of empathy. Oh, these guys are cool, man. I wanna be like them. I wanna dress like them. And and some of them are gonna wanna go on to become cops, right? They're gonna wanna do that. But some of them are just gonna wanna emulate that, right? They're gonna wanna dress like them. They're gonna wanna like mimic their style and things like that because they're cool, right? And these all become, you know, each of these shows become massive, massive PR boons um for the police, right? And they coexist along with shows that are now going to show us the gritty reality of the police, right? Um the NYPD blues and the wire and things like that, where we're gonna see kind of like this more gritty uh realism. And maybe we're gonna see in there that we're gonna have some of what we what have come to be known in the modern vernacular as the few bad apples, right? Um, and we uh, and people, of course, always leave off the second half of that saying, where it's the few bad apples spoil the entire barrel, right? Um, but we have these few bad apples, so this perception that yeah, it's an it's an organization of human beings, so we're going to get some bad people in there, right? And this is, of course, to deflect from institutionalized and systemic problems that are rooted within. Our justice system as a general, of course, on this channel, anybody who watches this channel knows Jarrett goes all the way back to Jamestown, right, and talks about the f- creation of of, um, of, what law enforcement was for in this country in the beginning, right, um, and, and how these systemic issues, there's a through thread all the way through, right? But we are now, through these television shows, basically told that, no – it's not a systemic thing, it's not an institutional thing, it's just a few corrupt people and the system will take care of them. You know, it may take us a minute to self-correct, but we're going to find them and we're going to root them out. And and once we get them out, then things are gonna be fine. Don't worry about it,
2: right? Which and that's
0: absolves that history you were just talking about, that it is yes. built on the existing ruins of, of racist putrefication in this case. But yes, like like that yeah. was what this whole system was built upon.
1: Yeah, and we can we can ignore that. That you know, we're told that doesn't exist because it's just these few individuals, right? And right. and it's very easy and it's a neat package, right? We like to as human beings, we like to have someone to blame, right? And right. if we can focus on these particular police officers, um these particular administrators, then that absolves us as a society. Of any further guilt in this, right? Of any further complicity in this, right? Yeah. It was them, and and now we can just set it aside and we can move on, right? And we don't we don't have to fix the system. We just have to root out the bad apples, right? Yeah, the system will
0: work fine if we get rid of these. Um, yes. Can you speak to representation? Not representation that you've been speaking to in terms of demographics, but like. In terms of just cops in general and their depiction and how that plays a role in in copaganda, I just did some cursory searching, and I found that right now there's about 660,000 uniformed police officers working in the United States in a population of 320 plus million. That is well under like 0.009% of the population. It is such a small percentage of the population are actually police officers. And yet um, another bit that actually comes from from the the source you've been referencing reveals that 25% of poli- shows on TV right now are about policing so like the, yeah 25% of the shows on television in this case scripted shows are about crime or policing, and yet less than 1% of the population is even part of that. Why is there such a discrepancy in representation? And I couldn't find another stat that I wanted to speak to, but even shows that don't qualify as crime shows or policing shows almost always still have a featured character that works as a police officer, even if the show has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with policing. It could be a comedy. Why is there so much representation of police officers in television and film? Like, I'm like in comparison to what the general population is.
1: I'm so glad you asked that. So this goes back to exactly what you brought up before, the ethically constitutive story, right? So in the early days of television and film and throughout the bulk of the 20th century, we got this from the Western, right? Okay. And what what we have are these foundational ideas of who we are as Americans, right? Or who we should be as Americans. And we got these in 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 the book of the 20th century from the western right um this idea that uh americans are rugged and that we are hearkening back to a particular time uh, when quote unquote men were men and and so on and so forth right and it crafted these ideas of who we should be we shouldn't shoot people in the back we should face them head-on in a duel, and we should do all of these things, right? That And and that we are going to civilize these United States, right? We're going to stamp out uh, the natives, and we're going to do all of these other things, right? And there's a whole host of, of things that are tied up in the Western, and the Western dominates the 20th century. Hollywood, on average, um, throughout the, the Middle period, is cranking out – over 50 Westerns a year, some years it's cranking out over a hundred Westerns in a year, Um, Western films in a year. Um, And then when television comes along, tons of television shows, right. Um, That are, uh, that are being put out. So it overwhelmingly dominates the landscape um, in, in the, in the 20th century um, Westerns do. And as the code starts to fall, There's a shift, right? The Western starts to fall out of favor. Again, as we see this rise in crime, people are now focusing on kind of the here and now more and what's going on. And while certainly we had detective dramas and cop dramas all throughout this period, they start to take over. From the Western, right, as kind of the, uh, the the banner man of the ethically constitutive story in the United States, right. It's no longer the Western. Now it's the the the, the police drama, right. Mm. Uh, and this is going to again now take over this banner of who we should be uh, as Americans and how we should operate, how we should um, handle what's happening in the world around us. And now though. Instead of conquering the native and conquering the landscape, the landscape that we're conquering moving west of the manifest destiny has become the urban center, mm. right? It's become the city, the inner city in particular, largely populated by people of color, right? right. Which coincides um, with
0: the gentr- gentrification movement.
1: Absolutely. So these are the new, uh, the new if you will, natives that we need to conquer, right? The new savages that we need to conquer, right? Become the inner cities, right? The ghettos, um, if you will, of the world, right? And, and, and that word uh, starts to become very popular in the 1960s and 70s in the detective dramas, the Starsky and Hutches and the, and the things like that. And we start to see um, that's who we need to tame, right? We need to tame the, the people of color in uh, these urban centers, because of course,
0: which has very a very really creepy on, illusion historically back to like 1930s Germany that no one wants to actually admit. But regardless, right, right,
1: right. well, absolutely, right. Well, you know, of course, we get ghettos from the Jewish ghettos, right? Of, of 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 right, and and absolutely, that's where it's coming from. And so we have the um, we have these police officers who at this time overwhelmingly white, right um and still largely are but here hugely overwhelmingly white um and maybe they have a, a, a fast talking uh contact or ci you know confidential informant who's black or or hispanic or something like that right um who is going to be uh uh, uh kind of give a little quote unquote color if you will to the show huh. right uh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Um, uh, you know, Huggy Bear on, on, uh, on, uh, Starsky and Hutch, the whole nine yards. Right. And they're going to, uh, uh, bring in that kind of little street flavor, that street vibe. Right. Um, and then there, these cops now are going out to like clean up what's going on. And, and, and the two things that we fear on these shows are of course, people of color and the counterculture, right. The hippies and the, you know, the people who aren't conforming. Um, to societal norms, those are the ones we're going after. Those are the ones who are selling the drugs and corrupting the youth and doing all of these other things right and so the the police drama becomes so huge for two reasons: one, it becomes again the new banner of the ethically constitutive story, and two catharsis. Mm. We get the answers that we don't get in the real world, right? We sit and we watch. On television, the Manson trial goes on for weeks and weeks. We sit and we watch. Um, we sit and we watch um, uh, um, all of these criminal, you know, Son of Sam and the Night Stalker is running around in the 1980s, right? And the Green River Killer and uh, the Hillside Strangler and these things are going on and on in the news. We don't get any resolution. We just get fear. But police dramas in an hour. They give us a resolution. We get the bad guy and we get the right one. And 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 law and order then comes along and gives us the structure where the first half of the show focuses on the detectives and them tracking down the, the the criminal and the second half where we get a conviction. Right now, we don't always get a conviction on law and order. Um, sometimes they do these rip from the headlines things and we, we still have these ambiguities. Mm-hmm. but the majority of the time we get some sort of resolution from these shows. We get an answer that we don't get in the real world. And so it gives people this cathartic feeling that something is being done about the, the, the rampant crime that's happening. And this is particularly important in um, the seventies and eighties and into the nineties as crime is ramping up and we're seeing things happening with the son of Sam and things like the satanic panic are kind of brewing the McMartin preschool case. That's part of the satanic panic is going on during this period. And it becomes one of the longest trials in, in, in us history we have, uh, and it, it becomes foundational, um, in, in, in uh, reshaping policeman conduct and how children are, are a uh, in relation to cases, um, through that case, we see uh, the rise in crime of of in the mid '80s of of all of these other uh, you know shootings and deaths and things that are that are going up. The crack ep- epidemic um, starts to come into play and cause a rise in crime. Of course, culminating in 1994, where we get the 1994 Crime Bill, which leads to the militarization of our police forces. Right, uh, and to now where you can't tell the difference between you know, a special forces group in in Afghanistan and a group of police on the streets of America. They've got the same equipment. Right. Um, and and all of that, those fears. Right. And now, of course, in this period, as we start to see recent spikes in violent crime here, that fear is returning. Right. And these shows, fictional as they may be, they give people some sort of answers and some sort of catharsis. And so that's a huge part of the reason that uh, police dramas dominate the landscape because people can go and they can get their answers in an hour or maybe in a you know a, a season, and and phew, man it's done. We 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 got the bad guy and 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 now we can kind of like feel a little bit less fear of what's going on going on as a matter of fact there's even i even remember the the television show uh, hunter from the 80s has a whole running kind of like continuation storyline of course this was at the time frame when uh television shows were episodic they didn't tell ongoing stories like many shows do today um and but they did this ongoing storyline um and it was called city of fear and it's this whole thing about the the this these people who are like kind of stoking and creating these violent crimes, almost kind of like uh uh, you know, they took a page from what Manson hoped to do with Helter Skelter and they're causing all of these crimes to boil out in the city and create this rampant fear. And that spoke to, you know, the increase in crime that was happening at the time. And 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 then we see on television these cops who are gonna do something about it. And if they have to break some rules to do it, fine. But they're they're reducing our fear, right? Because the night stalkers out there breaking into people's houses, right? Um, and all of these other things, and people are are, um, you know, terrified of of, of these things, right? And, and we need something to kind of release that pressure valve. And, and in some way, these police shows serve that function.
2: Well, I think one of the other functions is that you know, back to Jared's point, the prevalence of the police in the media, Right. Even though the actual police are, like you said, less than one percent of the population, the fact that they are so prevalent in the media leads us to this false perception that they're essentially everywhere. Right. Which then causes mm-hmm. us to police ourselves because the police force actually isn't that big, that we will all police ourselves and other people because we think that they're everywhere. Right. Panopticon, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: it, it is. It absolutely is. Right. We are always being watched. Right. Um, you've you've talked about the Panopticon on, on here, I'm sure before. I
2: don't think right? we have actually. We've yeah, so, a lot, but we've never so, touched on the Panopticon. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's this, you know, uh, the Panopticon, for those who don't know, is this uh, uh, concept of a prison. It starts at its root, this concept of a prison, right? Um, and the prison, um, and I've actually worked uh, as a contractor in facilities that follow this model, where what you have is you have kind of a centrally located guard station that allows the guard, as a matter of fact, uh, here in Colorado Springs, our criminal justice center, those big round buildings that are here are based on this model, right? You have a centrally located thing. And then around that, you have the prisoner cells and these cells at the cjc here are completely open in the front right there's nowhere the prisoners can hide where the guard can't see them so they are being monitored constantly by the guard right at least that's the perception right obviously a guard or or even a group of guards only can can see a certain area but the perception is based on this design that you're always being watched or that you could be watched at any <laughs> given moment and so that then is uh, to act as a deterrent for you to do anything wrong or illicit, because at any moment you could be caught, right? And then uh, people like uh, Michel Foucault and things like that translate this right into a larger social thing, like Nick was just pointing out, that if we have this perception that we're always being monitored by the police, then we are less likely to run that red light or or, um, uh, do... Any of a number of of things that we might otherwise do, shoplift or whatever the case may be, commit any crime because there is the perception that the police are going to be right there to watch us, right? They're going to be right there um, to nab us. And now, of course, we have video camera surveillance and, and all of these other things that add to that, right, and and police using systems that allow them to monitor our social media and all these other things that add to that perception that they are Constantly there watching us, constantly there monitoring us. When in reality, with the overwhelming majority of crimes, I mean overwhelming majority of crimes, police show up after
0: the crime is done. Yeah, they, you they know they they're 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 really ineffective at preventing them.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Prevention is is th- that rare moment where you see that on that video mm-hmm. on YouTube where somebody tries to rob a store and a cop just happens to be right. – walks around the corner into the store or something like that. That's, a, that's an absolute rarity that the cops are in the quote-unquote right place at the right time or mm-hmm. even when they respond, they get there before the crime is
0: done. But the propaganda also that we've been talking about helps, uh, again, as you used the term earlier, rationalize or even justify in the minds of many to support – violations to their own privacy, to, to, yes. to support the extraction of their resources for mass incarceration. So it actually, it serves this purpose as well. Well, of course we have two and a half million people or whatever it is in in, in in prison. We have more people, more prisoners than any country on earth or any civilization in human history because, well, crime is just happening all the time and we need it because I see it yes. on TV. Um, and it's okay that there are cameras everywhere all of the time, at every traffic light, at every business, at every bank at every university and every everywhere because somebody has to be watching all the time because there's crime everywhere. There is crime yes. everywhere and it's there's criminals everywhere and everyone's trying to take my things or hurt me or murder me or whatever. Yes. These cop shows also just build that fear and justify those types of things.
1: You you bring up a very important point there uh uh Jared in that uh for instance there's this perception that uh if you you know and and we see this it's mentioned on more cop shows than I can imagine. If you ask for a lawyer, you must be guilty. Mm -hmm. If you ask for a lawyer, you must be guilty, right? Uh, Let me say this without any equivocation. Always ask for a lawyer. Always Mm -hmm. should be the first thing out of your mouth. Lawyer. The minute a cop says arrest, the first words out of your mouth should be lawyer. And those should be the only words out of your mouth. Um, You shouldn't say anything. There's a great video uh, online um, for those who haven't seen it, um, and uh, I highly recommend everyone watch it, and it's called Never Talk to the Cops. Hmm. Um, And it's a great uh, breakdown by a lawyer um, who tells you why you shouldn't say anything to the police. Um, We have a perception, again, drawn from these television shows, right? Human beings also have a natural inclination that we want to – to defend ourselves. We want to tell our side of the story, right? But what we don't realize is that in doing that, we could be inadvertently crimin- incriminating ourselves. Uh, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Police use Occam's razor all the time. They look for the simplest answer. Uh, television gives us this idea that police are these uh, very deep investigators and they're going to go looking. No, they go for what's the simplest answer. And a lot of times the simplest answer is the right answer. So that's how they get the arrests that they do get and the convictions that they do get. Because a lot of times it is the husband. A lot of times it is the neighbor, right? Most crimes are committed by people you know um, um, in a lot of cases, right? Um, But the problem there is, is that you could very innocently, as, as they describe in this video, you could very innocently, you know, the will police ask you what seems like an innocuous question. Where are you coming from? And you just say, oh, I was coming from, you know, such and such a place. It just so happens that such and such a place is a block from where the crime that was committed that they're looking for somebody for is, right? You've just put yourself in their sights without even realizing it. Um, uh, so you should shut your mouth. Answer only the questions that you are legally obligated to answer. And and what I recommend is, is that the ACLU has an app that you can download. It's per state. It's by each state in the United States. You download the app for your state, and that app will tell you. It will tell you what you are required legally to tell the police, if you are required to give them ID, what questions you are required to answer in the state legally. And that's the minimum you should do. Other than that, you should shut your trap. If they say, can I search you or search your vehicle? You should say you don't consent. They're going to do it anyway because that's the way cops operate. But it's important that you say that um, and hope that they didn't accidentally turn off their body camera or their dash camera, which cops, you know, they have accidents all the time. Um, And uh, and then say you want a lawyer. Because the police are – they are allowed under under the Constitution of the United States by Supreme Court ruling. The police can lie to you, but if you lie to the police, you're in trouble, right? So they could tell you they have all kinds of evidence that you did something and that this, that, and the other thing, and they could be full of shit, and they know how to use techniques – to keep you trapped in a room and coerce a confession. And 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 a lot of people will agree to things. We have dozens and dozens of people that have been exonerated and many, many more who are still sitting in jail, who had confessions coerced out of them because they were sitting in a room with the police for hours on end and they just wanted to get out of there. And some cop told them, hey, if you just give us the answer we want, you get to go home. And they're lying through their fucking teeth. But people are, you know, by that time they're hungry, they're tired, they're scared. They just want to get the fuck out of there, and they, and they say things that aren't true because they believe these police who use these techniques all the time. Um, and, and again, we have this perception. We're going, we're going into it hampered because, again, for most of us, our um, our experiences with the police are very uh, limited and they are mostly come from what we see on television and in movies. Um, You know, I have the benefit that um, I worked for years and years in the fire protection industry. And in that capacity, I got to go into uh, work with, a lot of police agencies as a contractor behind the scenes. I got to go into secure police buildings. I've been down to Supermax in Florence. I've been into a lot of uh law enforcement facilities uh from the state to the federal level. The FBI, the ATF, I've been in their offices. Um and you hear some things when you're behind the scenes because when cops are behind closed doors, right? Um they they uh they act differently than they typically do uh, in front of the populace. Right. And they say things and I've seen them massage reports. I've seen them. I, I, I sat in a room with a trainer for the LA County Sheriff's department and listen to him, tell a group of trainees, Hey, if you're taking down a suspect and as you're taking him down, his face scrapes against the stucco wall shit happens. I've sat in a room and listened to them talk about the particular words and language to use in a report to make something either just ambiguous or just specific enough to imply something that maybe isn't necessarily what happened, but hey, it's close enough, right? Um, And so all of these things play together there is a culture, uh, created by police. There is a systemic culture and that is what, uh, what we are pushing against, right? This culture that's created. Um, and, and some of it comes from these films, right? A lot of these people went into policing because of what they saw on television. Right. Um, and so we, uh, that's what we're pushing against and that's what we're fighting against. Um, And that's why propaganda is so powerful.
2: Well, and I think that, you know, I talk to many people who want to become, you know, police officers or involved in law enforcement in some way. And I think that, you know, they themselves many times are victims of this perception that they see on film and televisions also, where they think that, you know, they're going to go into the system and like, Either there's no problem with it, you know, or they're gonna go in and be the ones that fix it, right? Because they see this like yes. glorified version Absolutely. of what behind the scenes looks like on television and film and they think that this is like, you know, the idyllic workplace for some reason, you know. Yeah.
1: Well, and we see we've we've seen cases of police who have spoken out against other cops and then they've been fired Mm -hmm. for it or censured for it or whatever, because, you know, one of the other things we're, we're, we're really pushing against as a society is that cops don't rat on other cops. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's this code of silence that if a police, and that's what happens. Yeah. That's what happens with, you know, the George Floyd case, right. As one cop is killing him, the others are kind of just standing by not wanting to intervene because you don't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. That's not the standard. You don't, you don't do that, right? You don't intervene because if you intervene, you're going against the code, and that is going to cost you.
0: Mm-hmm. So copaganda, um, more complex than I guess we originally thought. And as we had this discussion here, thanks to Stephan, um, it's – well, and he already brought up Foucault – the capillary effect. Its power is diffuse, right? It's diffuse through a number mm-hmm. of different layers to justification of, of of violation of constitutional rights, to rationale of of, of of CCTV everywhere, to mass incarceration, to I mean, even 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 turning the uh the, the actual act of policing into some sort of like it's sex appeal and things along those lines. There's so many different layers. Um, we didn't even talk. I mean, I guess we did talk, but in this kind of wrap up here, um, what it means in terms of, um, institutional racism, I mean, I guess is where, where, where we started this conversation. So like, there's just so much here, Nick, do you have anything? Well, I think
2: like, it's important to note, we didn't even talk about like the actual sort of community outreach propaganda that the police do. Like I vividly remember (laughs) being in my daughter's school and she's in first grade. Right. And they bring in a police officer to do a presentation for all the kids. And like, and I'm like. Is this real oh, yeah. life? Like, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, I got hair like,
0: when I was growing up. Yeah. They, yeah.
1: Yeah. They put out a, they put out a, uh, uh, there was a whole like Twitter thing that they put out a Twitter post of the LAPD when the Floyd protests were going on, where it was a bunch of LAPD officers on one knee saying, you know, we're taking a knee with you, <sighs> um, um, you know, in this thing. And it's like, wh- what? What? <laughs> <laughs> The LAPD, man, like I grew up in L.A. and oh, man, you want to talk about uh, the cops being just corrupt. The LAPD, man, I I could tell stories for days about the things I saw them do to me or my uncles or whatever. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, Well, anything you want to uh, tie this up with a little bow? Yeah, I think – the, the big
1: overarching thing with propaganda is for people to kind of do a little introspection. Um, it's very easy. And, and, and I hear it all the time. Um, well, it's just fiction, right? Well, it's just, uh, it's just fiction. It doesn't have any real world impact. Um, and, and it does. Uh, fiction has far more impact through allegory, through metaphor, through semiotics and so many other ways. It has far more impact, on our lives than we actually believe it does. And th- whether we're talking about police shows or fantasy shows or sci-fi really? shows or things like all of that stuff, right? All of these things have an impact on our lives that are so ingrained and so built in we may not realize them but they're absolutely there um and they influence real world thought um on a multiplicity of yep. layers and i would uh really say that i really would hope that people would do a little introspection and maybe ask some questions about things uh, overall like the things i mentioned before with the flicking of the cigarette into the gasoline and the way medical procedures police procedures courtroom procedures so many other things um, more than likely, you're you're generally safer to believe that something that you see on television is wrong than to believe that it's right. And I would uh, hope that people would start to ask more questions and maybe d- dig a little bit deeper rather than just taking things at, uh, um, on television. Like there are some things that obviously you see on television that you, ah, that's just movie magic, right? Uh, but there are some very subtle things that I think that we don't question that we should.
2: All right, Nick. Thank you to Stefan, first off, for rejoining us and giving us all that information about propaganda, We've actually been trying to do this episode for a long time, but we've all been so busy. Um, it took us this long. Um, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters uh, for continuing to support us. Um, if you like that episode, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. I am Nick. I'm Jared. Later. Stefan. <laughs>